It's Thursday, February 22nd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Matt Greer, and joining me in studio, we have Jason Moser from Motley Fool Million Dollar Portfolio and David Kretzman from Hidden Gems Canada. Gentlemen, welcome. Hey, hey. hey. how you happy feeling? Thursday. Pretty good. Jason, happy eighth anniversary. You started at the Motley Fool eight years ago? Yes, actually, today, my eighth oh, they... year full anniversary. I am. Uh... Thank you for saying and that. And has it man. felt like eight years? Has it felt more like seven and a half years, nine years? <laughs> this is the longest I've ever worked at one particular place. And I, I say it, and I really do mean it, that I enjoy being able to come into work every day. It doesn't really feel a whole heck of a lot like work. And, and so, for me, I can only hope for eight more just like this. Well, we are lucky to have you. That's Absolutely. nice of you to say. Thanks. Okay, guys, on today's show, we're going to talk some Wayfair. We're going to talk stamps.com. I don't know about that name. I'm going to ask you about that name. <laughs> we'll talk about it. And and Pandora. But I want to begin with Roku, one of my favorite names. The streaming device maker, shares of Roku down big on earnings. Now, David, this is a stock that's more than doubled since the IPO back in September. Is the honeymoon finally over here? I don't know. That's the, the million-dollar question here. But I think there there is reason to not be completely pessimistic about Roku. I know initially there's the, reason not to be, <laughs> <laughs> which I feel like that's, that's the type of strong statement that I love. Hey, you know, I because I, uh, initially when when the company went public last year, I was definitely more in the pessimistic camp. But looking at uh, what what management was saying uh, for this quarter and their outlook for the year, I was thinking well, maybe there is a way that they can compete in this space because obviously. When you're talking about this whole streaming platform space or these streaming devices, you're talking about Roku, which is, you know, kind of that neutral standalone device. They're agnostic whether you're trying to stream stuff from YouTube or Netflix or Hulu. Then you're they're going up against Apple, Google, and Amazon, like literally the biggest tech giants out there. So as far as competitors go, that's a, a steep climb. But really what Roku is trying to do, they're trying to become the distribution platform for streaming. And some of the metrics look really good. Their number of active accounts were up 44% to over 19 million. Uh, so those are people who either have the devices or they have Roku uh, on their smart TV. They're the number of hours that were streamed increased 55% to 4.3 billion. So they are seeing more more users and more engagement on the, that platform. But 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 I think again the the ultimate question there is can they really build up enough of a platform business or an advertising business? They're not really trying to make money on the devices that they sell, but they're trying to become the operating system for streaming uh, platforms. That's a, a tall order, but they, they are seeing some progress, so uh, something to watch. But like I said, I'm not not as pessimistic as I was, but it's still just such a tall order to compete against those giants. So when you talk about this space, Roku was really a pioneer, a bit of a first mover, right? Yeah, yeah. They, I is, guess they is, start... there, is there a first mover advantage, or is that basically something of you know we don't really talk first mover advantages when you're talking about technology and and how fluid all these companies are? There might be some somewhat of an advantage. They are still certain. Certainly a leading platform, but I think that's one of the the risks here is that there isn't really a switching cost as a user. I think a lot of people will even have multiple streaming devices. So you might have a Chromecast, you might have a Fire TV stick, and a Roku. And as a user, there's not really much of a 
cost or um, a disadvantage to switching from one to the other or having multiple platforms there. What Roku is trying to do, uh, they're focusing on smart TVs. So, in 2017, one in five smart TVs sold in the U.S. had Roku pre-installed on the TV. They're talking more about becoming the, the operating system for that whole home entertainment ecosystem. So, plugging the Roku operating system into smart speakers and different devices that really uh, you know, will be plugged into the living room, uh, and and they really just they, they do see themselves as a platform uh, distribution, a content distribution platform. So one of the stats that they threw out in the in the uh, the press release, which I don't. I don't know if I fully agree with this, but they're basically saying if you compare us to traditional cable companies with those 19 million users, we're third behind Comcast and AT&T. <laughs> now the difference there is that no one's actually paying a subscription to to Roku, but. Uh, it, it is interesting to see that as you're seeing the shift uh, with with cord cutting, people leaving that traditional cable platform, Roku is certainly on the upswing, and they are a beneficiary as more people are are shifting over to streaming. But the company still isn't profitable. They're not expecting to be profitable this year. They're really reinvesting in growth. Uh, they're cutting the prices on the devices that they are selling, but they see that really as a customer acquisition strategy. They're like like I said, they're not trying to make money there. The the platform, uh, which is largely their platform sales are largely made up of advertising dollars, uh, and that's where they see uh, you know as a primary uh, revenue driver going yeah, forward. Yeah, I gotta say, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of in your camp here. Like, I initially was very skeptical when they went public. I feel like I'm a little bit more on the fence now than I was before. Uh, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say I am actually optimistic or bullish. And I think the biggest problem I have is. Um, if if that monetization model is really, I mean, we know it's going from the devices to being the platform. And if you're really trying to base your monetization on advertising and in content, well, it costs a lot of money to bring content to the table. And advertising, I mean, come on, man. Seriously, we've got a lot of companies out there that already do it really well. And a lot of these streaming offerings that we get now are either sans advertising or they give you at least a cost incentive to pay a little bit more to eliminate advertising from the mix, like Hulu, for example. And and on the switching cost side, I think an interesting dynamic is that with with Roku, there's no really a, there's no switching cost to leave Roku. But if you have an Amazon Fire TV device or an Apple TV device, there is a little bit more of a switching cost there because you're already hooked into that ecosystem. And and so I'll just use myself as an example. We have Amazon Fire TV, and because I can access all of our pictures and videos in the Amazon Cloud and whatnot there, it just makes it very easy. I would never consider switching to a Roku because the Amazon I'm already ingrained and meshed in that Amazon environment. So kind of interesting to see how the switching costs work one way, but not not quite the other. So I'm going to call you cautiously pessimistic. <laughs> Probably the best way to classify <laughs> me for now. Yeah, I think that's where we're at, and I, I agree with you, JMO. I, I just. It's hard for me to get really excited about advertising being the primary driving force behind the company, and that's really, at least in the next year or so, that's where management sees the bulk of the growth coming from. But being an advertising business competing against Apple, Amazon, and Google, I just I wish I hope that they can find some way to bring in some sort of a subscription. I could see Roku. Maybe offering a bundle of their own, where maybe they they lump in Netflix, HBO, and Hulu into uh, into a bundle, a streaming bundle that you can purchase less if you're on the Roku platform, something like that to really give them a little bit more of an edge over the competitors. But as it stands now, I still just wonder how sustainable of an advantage the company really has. And guys, let's move on to Wayfair. Shares of the home retailer down big on earnings. Now, Jason, I know that at least as a consumer. 
you are a fan of Wayfair. Is that a true statement? That is a true statement. Okay. What about the stock? What do you think? I, I've always been a fan of the stock, just from the perspective of it's one of those rule breaker type ideas where I felt like they have uh, a lot of opportunity. The one counter to that is I've always tried to basically frame it thusly. Instead of buying Wayfair stock, convince me why I shouldn't just buy a share of Amazon. And if you can tell me why I should buy Wayfair and not Amazon, why, you know, then we have something there. Because I kind of come back to, well, I feel like I'd rather just own Amazon, um, and that's still where I am today. But that's not to say I don't think Wayfair has a lot of potential. As a consumer, I think it's working great. They're doing something very well there, and they've really um, produced a an optimal shopping environment for online um, home shopping. This was a good quarter from a lot of perspectives, um, but it is tough to keep. Keep the momentum going in your stock price when the market has just bid this thing up beyond all expectations based on a business that's still unprofitable. And we really don't have a clear idea as to when they're going to actually hit profitability. And guidance here in the near term suggests that they may actually be a little bit below expectations here, at least in quarter one or quarter two. And I think that's really what the market um, is taking them to task uh, today on was was what they said in that call. Um, but what we care what we care about with, with Wayfair primarily is top line growth and repeat customers. And on both fronts there, we saw a lot of signs of success. Yeah, I'd say the the growing number of repeat orders and the overall growing number of users, and also the the average size of the orders continues to to bump up. So a lot of the metrics moving in the right direction. There's obviously the the overarching. A question mark like when does a company hit profitability when they're going up against Amazon? Walmart is rolling out more of their online furniture shopping, so they're going up against big competitors. Target is another one, but one of the things I do like about Wayfair when we talk about a leadership team. This is a leadership team I really admire. The two co-founders still own close to 30% of the shares. They have sold off some of their shares over the past year, but they still own a sizable stake. And when you look at the incentive structure from uh, with the compensation there, Wayfair is really unique as far as tech or online companies go. The base salaries for the founders are both at $80,000 a year, and the bulk of executive pay is actually paid out in restricted stock units that vest over a five-year period. And uh, the directors on the Board, they're not paid any cash for showing up. They're actually compensated with restricted stock units that vest over three years. So, that, again, that's just something very different than you'll see at really any of the Silicon Valley tech giants. And that, to me, that reinforces that this leadership team, they're focused on the long term. They're not going to try to artificially juice short term numbers because they're being compensated on the value of the company over a three or five year period. So that that does set them apart a bit. And the fact that the two co founders still own a healthy stake, they're still involved in the leadership of the company, that gives me a little bit more confidence. And Jason, you mentioned Amazon. I want to talk about another potential competitor, Walmart. Walmart announcing on Thursday that it's revamping part of its website to better highlight its furniture and home offerings. How much of a threat is Walmart to Wayfair? Well, I mean, it's definitely one to keep an eye on. I mean, Walmart is a big company with vast financial resources and a tremendous distribution network. And I saw that headline and Walmart looking to make more, uh, make more ways into furniture. And I thought to myself, well, how are they going to do that? Just you know, by acquiring Wayfair seems to me probably the the easiest idea solution to that. Um, but I think that anytime you have a business like Walmart looking to uh, Gain share in any space, you have to take that seriously. It's a big company, it's a good company. Um, Amazon obviously is going to keep on doing what they're doing. I think Wayfair has done a very good job 
um, over the years, though, building an optimal shopping experience for the home. I, I will reiterate that as a consumer. I think it's far better than Amazon when it comes to shopping for um, items in the home. And I think that the market continues to give the business a little bit of a pass, kind of like it does with Amazon, because they can see at least some, some similarities there. They're investing everything they're making back into building this business out. Um, it is a good idea. They do, they do a good job, obviously, bringing customers back for more. Um, and there is an international component to it as well. I mean, international revenue is up over 100% for the quarter, um, closing in on $600 million now. So, this is a business is growing very quickly, and it's got a lot of promise. I think that the stock was just well beyond uh, any any sort of fundamental valuation there. A pullback seems seems right, particularly given the guidance in the call. Okay, so five years from now, is Wayfair still a standalone company? I really didn't think it'd even make it public, to be honest with you. I thought Amazon would have bought it before they went public, but but now that they are where they are, um, I, I really do think these guys want to try to make it on their own. So I, I, I tend to think if if they are acquired, it, it, they are going to command the price, and I, I'd like to see them independent. Okay, guys, Stamps.com getting a big stamp of approval from investors. I blew the line. I was so proud of the line, and I blew it. <laughs> God, I couldn't resist. Let's try That's that good. again. Okay. And you can leave this in, Dan. Stamps.com getting a big stamp of approval from investors. Absolutely. That's who writes this stuff. Hey, Shares up big on earnings. David, there is more to this business than just stamps. We were talking before the show, and I've always been hung up on that stamps.com name. And, and, and is it just about stamps and selling stamps <laughs> that the government sells to them? And what's going on here? And lo and behold, you say, hey, it's not just stamps. Yeah, the, the name, yeah, fully up front, it, it's, it's repulsive. You know, it brings you back to the dot com era. <laughs> And you know the company was started late '90s, so so it really did start as a dot com love child, and it was the the first PC postage vendor. So essentially, the USPS acknowledged that they're not very good at reaching small businesses, home offices. So they're going to essentially outsource or offload that aspect of the market to Stamps.com to really focus on reaching those um, smaller players, uh, while, while the USPS could focus on its bread and butter, the, the larger clients. So, for almost a couple decades, that was all Stamps.com did. But over the past few years, they've uh, really tried to branch out beyond the USPS, so uh, bringing solutions that reach multiple carriers like UPS, FedEx, DHL, and then integrating with a variety of marketplaces, whether it's Amazon, eBay, uh, Shopify, and essentially, having a platform where you can aggregate all the orders from these multiple marketplaces and websites into one place, then find the optimal shipping carrier for each order. So, over the past few years, they've acquired four other companies. ShipStation is probably the most noteworthy one of those. And over that time period, the average revenue per user for stamps.com has increased quite a bit. Their churn rate has dropped as they've, again, shifted to these higher volume shippers. So, they're serving warehouses and fulfillment centers and e-commerce companies. So, those companies tend to spend more. They need a more advanced platform. And they also stick around longer, so they have a lower churn rate. So, as a subscription business, those are really nice dynamics. And that continued in this latest fourth quarter. Revenue was up 25%, earnings up 38%, average revenue per user up 16%. And they're serving about 735,000 customers, primarily in the US now. And they are starting to branch out a little bit internationally, testing the waters there. But all in all, this has turned into much more than just a niche business in bed with the USPS, which was a decent business, but it was small. It wasn't growing very quickly. And management essentially recognized the 
the enormous tailwind and that opportunity with e-commerce. So Stamps.com has been a beneficiary of that, especially with these latest acquisitions. The breadth of their offerings really makes them a big beneficiary of e-commerce. Okay, so let's let's go back to the name because I am <laughs> hung up on the name. This week we saw Priceline change its name to Booking Holdings to more accurately reflect Priceline's booking business, right? Mm-hmm. Big part of the business. So my question for you: Should Stamps.com stick? With its name, for now, I think it's actually been a boon to to long term foolish investors to to have the name be stamps.com because so many people get hung up on that. Like short sellers will constantly attack the. Uh, yeah, they'll, they'll really just attack that Stamps.com legacy platform. They get so hung up on that that it has poor reviews. It's a weak business model. It's it's a dying business. Like who sends mail? Who needs stamps anyway? But in the meantime, they have these four other brands that are really catering to this huge boom in e-commerce, and these are vital solutions. Uh, so I kind of like the fact that it's uh, kind of a distraction, sort of similar to people who might have overlooked Priceline. Uh, you know, like like we were talking about before the show. Like Matt. me, I yeah. was just thinking, you know, Priceline. Line and William Shatner and name your own price and why would I want to own this stock and I kind of miss the whole booking stamps.com I mean I think you changed the name to something like postage and such and <laughs> I like that commercial like there you go. hey we have stamps and more. I like that and such I like that but and I'd the, say for the, now leave it you know maybe three or five years from now after the stocks tripled then then maybe you, uh, you you switch the name okay guys and let's wrap up with um, a little Pandora shares of the music service down big on earnings a <laughs> much littler Pandora today. Oh. Much, much smaller. Golly. Jason, it's really hard to talk Pandora without also talking Spotify and Apple Music and Amazon. What what's the Pandora story now? What's the secret sauce? Yeah, I don't mean to make light of Pandora's drop today for any investors that are feeling the pinch, but you shouldn't have been invested in Pandora in the first place. So let's just get that out of the way. Um, <laughs> Tough luck. So I know Tough you'll appreciate this. I think Pandora Mac. I think Pandora is hitting its JC Penny moment. Where wow. we need to ask the question, does the world really need it? And I think the answer is probably no. You know, when you look at the competition out there, the alternatives, the options, I don't know that the world needs Pandora. Um, it is a fascinating thing to watch too, because this really was kind of the first mover in this space, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, but but you look at this company's financials. I mean, they went public in 2011. And, and, and I mean, these are the worst. <laughs> some of the worst financials you will ever see. I mean, they 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 cannot get profitable, and, and I'm not certain that they ever will. And and it, it was interesting to see the reaction after the the release came out yesterday versus today with the stock tanking. And it all goes back to what was in the call uh, when management decided to hold back on really offering any full year 2018 guidance because things just aren't quite clear enough for them at this point. They were able to offer some sort of high level quarterly guidance, but the market wanted more given that they had some decent numbers in the release for this. Business, um, the fact that they can't give more clarity as to how 2018 is going to shake out. I mean, you read that release and you're thinking, man, these guys are setting the table for what should be a really nice year. And then they come out and they say, we can't really offer much beyond what we've got right now. And what we've got right now doesn't actually look that great. Um, so to me, You've got Spotify, which is the global leader. You've got Apple Music, which is really catching hold here domestically. I just don't know that the world needs Pandora. Okay, so let me let me try to throw a bull case at you. Okay, because SiriusXM has a stake in Pandora. Yes. What about SiriusXM buying all of Pandora? See, and I can actually see a world where that 
is the case. And as a SiriusXM subscriber, um, I mean, I'm I'm a, a big fan. I mean, my wife and I both have it. I think you have it too, right? Yeah. And I don't know if you have it, Dave. I don't. But, I, don't. I mean, it's it, I, I like it for a lot of reasons. I mean, obviously, I'm a, I'm a fan of the Howard Stern show, and that's that's the primary um, reason for me. But um, seventies think... on seven. Seventies on seven. <laughs> the lithium channel's pretty good too. <laughs> nice. I mean, you've got the Grateful Dead, you've got the Beatles, you've got news, you've got everything under one roof. There, I think I could I could see a point where where maybe SiriusXM says, look, you know, we feel like there's a lot of of equity in that brand, in the Pandora brand, and it would be a way for them to expand their mobile presence. Because SiriusXM does have a very good mobile app. Um, I think that getting perhaps that Pandora brand, there could be something to that, um, given that they've already got you know the the contracts inked and they've got a lot of the talent and the finances sort of in order there. And I and I think leadership that's been a bit more forward thinking perhaps than Pandora's. So I could certainly see that being the case one day. But I think that if that does happen, it's probably more of a case where Pandora is a bit of a desperate seller, okay. and I don't know that really investors stand to make out either way. On so that. that should not be the central part of my investment no, thesis. I, I, I would just <laughs> there are there are better there are better ideas out there for new money today. I can okay. tell you that. Yeah, the, the serious XM piece is really the only. Thing I see to be even partially optimistic with Pandora because yeah. Sirius has been a great business yeah. uh, over the past several years, uh, and obviously have the leadership there with John Malone and Liberty Media. So they, they are some powerful heavy hitters in the media space. But even that, I, I don't, I don't know if it's enough to, to save Pandora at this point. What was really par- partially the, the downfall for Pandora is being so late to the the music subscription. Game. They they lagged far behind Spotify and Apple Music with this whole idea that you pay essentially ten bucks a month and you get access to virtually every song out there. Because uh, they just came out with their offering, I want to say a year, year and a half ago, and now they only have five and a half million paying subscribers. That compares to seventy million for Spotify, over thirty million for uh, Apple Music. Last we heard, Amazon. It's been estimated has about sixteen million. So they're a distant fourth or fifth player in that subscription business. They they were early. Pioneer or first mover with kind of that algorithm driven ad supported uh, platform where you just listen and they'll like spit out different songs that they think you'll like based on your habits. So that was cool, but that that really wasn't uh, a very scalable, profitable business. And now they're so late to the game with that subscription offering. They, I just don't see what they offer that uh, really is as much differentiated from competitors. And as someone who used to use Pandora a couple years ago, now I just use um, Amazon Music. If you're a Prime subscriber, you can subscribe to Amazon Music for eight bucks. Yeah. Love Amazon or Music. You yeah. can get Prime for free. They have like an Echo only subscription for three ninety nine. I'm glad you mentioned Amazon because I find myself more and more with our Echoes in our house using Amazon Music. Yeah. Um, and I think that just kind of all goes back to the same kind of thing we were talking about uh, in in regard to Wayfair. Why shouldn't I just buy Amazon? I think with something like Pandora, I mean, music is kind of ancillary at this point. It seems right. like it's it's something that bigger competitors can offer as a value add, and that's what Amazon and Apple and Google do. So instead of buying Pandora. Why shouldn't I just buy a share of Amazon or Apple or Google and just move on? And I mean, honestly, I think that's the better solution anyway. Makes me really want to stay away. Probably 99% chance we'll never touch Spotify once they do go public. Because I think exactly for that reason, as a standalone music competitor, I think it's just so difficult to stand out and actually generate any sort of meaningful profit here. When you're going up against Apple and Amazon, where they can have that be a loss leader or just have it, you know, sold at cost. So I. I don't think Spotify is any more appealing than Pandora today. Okay, I've got two questions for you as we wrap up. Okay, the first question I need a music suggestion. 
Oh, JMO, you go first. I need to think okay. on that. Um, all right. So, I guess everybody probably out there knows I'm a big widespread panic fan. I've been following those guys for years. And um, so, I'm going to give you something a little bit beyond a panic recommendation today. One of their um, founding members, Michael Hauser, he's, he's passed away years ago, but he had in an album that was put out shortly after he passed away, called Sandbox. And so, that's Michael Hauser, H-O-U-S-E-R. You can just find that on Spotify, actually. And they have it right there on the free model. Michael Hauser, Sandbox. It's a very good album, sort of a you know, easy on Southern rock, a little bit of country twang in there at times. Um, good listening. I, I'm currently making my way through Game of Thrones, so I've been listening to the soundtrack quite a bit. I, I listen to a lot of soundtracks, so uh, Game of Thrones soundtrack just incredibly well done. Two tracks in particular: "You Are No Son of Mine" and then Misha, both uh, really well done songs. If you're into soundtracks, worth a listen. What about you, Mac? I will throw in um, Mandolin Orange. They're a folk duo. They got mandolin, guitar, violin, banjo, great vocals. I mean, hey. If that's not enough for you, I can't help you. I'm sold. If you're into kind of bluegrass, um, Avid Brothers esque, it's a North Carolina band. Love them. I Man- like that. Mandolin Orange. It's another nice. band. They're kind of like Yonder Mountain String Band. If you ever heard of them, another oh, great, no, great I love that. Yeah, it's good stuff. Okay, and as we wrap up, you didn't think that you were going to get away with without <laughs> me asking my completely arbitrary question. I and love this, this is a fun one. This <laughs> is the desert island question. So here we go. You're on a desert island. And you're 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 confronted with these four stocks, and you've got to own one for the next five years: Roku, Wayfair, Stamps.com, and Pandora. Hmm. I'm gonna go with uh, Stamps.com and maybe short Pandora. Is that an option? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I'm I'm weighing Stamps.com and Wayfair. I'll go with Wayfair just because I know the business a little bit better, and I do think they're onto something. But but I like David Stamps Stamps.com too, assuming that they change the name. Well, guys, thanks for joining me, Jason. Happy eighth Fooliversary. Thank you very much. As always, people on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Matt Greer. Thanks for listening, and we will see you tomorrow. <laughs>